This episode is sponsored by Be The Man Conference 2022. Be The Man Conference is taking a stand for masculinity and mental health this upcoming November in Miami. Be The Man is about becoming a better father, husband, producer, and overall a better leader. So if you are looking to expand your skills alongside other amazing individuals, check out www.bethemancon.com. That's bethemancon.com and become the man that you were truly destined to be. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Dental Practice Heroes podcast. We're doing another clinical episode. I got the guys from Colorado Surgical Institute, Dr. Brisky and Dr. Tahir Dune. What's up? What up, Paul? What's going on, man? So what are we going to talk about today, guys? We got kind of deep last time on a surgical things, and I think today we're going to talk about the restorative component, and especially what a lot of people are interested nowadays is what is this new digital workflow, all this cool stuff we can do with the technology and how we employ that into our practices. So I'll let you guys just take it from here. Like, go for it. Let's, what are we talking about? So right off the bat, I mean, we can start with just like single units. We get a lot of questions on emergence profiles and the gingival zenith and where to put the contacts and all of that. So we'll start kind of at single units, hop into multiple units, pivot into overdentures, and then into the full arch digital restorative. We'll still touch base on some analog stuff too, because some people are still going to be doing some things analog. So we just want to make sure you have all the tips and tricks you need. But we can start off like, let's just imagine a, a posterior implant where a smile line and everything is not an issue. If you have a cover screw in, you're going to make you know your incision, put a healing abutment on. Ideally, you want to wait a couple of weeks and then come back in and, and put your scan body on and then go ahead and get the scan. I'll let Dr. Brisky talk about the type of scans needed and the scan bodies. You know, We use Neodent and they came out with a metal scan body that works really well. Or you can make a custom healing abutment that's going to help with the emergence profile for the implant crown coming out so it doesn't look like like a cherry or, or some kind of like watermelon on a stick type of emergence profile because you want to have the patient have the gingival contacts closed well so they're not going to pack food around the implant and have you know peri-implantitis later down the road. Well let me ask you this to hear how often are you leaving on your surgical day are you just putting the healing abutment on or are you always going to cover screw and suturing over up top? So me and Dr. Brisky are a little different in this. Back in the day, I was trained by Mish, and he showed some statistic about just surgical time and placing healing abutments and not having to do a secondary surgery and how much time it saves. So if I get any torque value over a 20 on the implant, then I'm going to place my healing abutment and you know graft or suture or PRP or whatever and use a healing abutment. If it's under 20, then I'm kind of making the game time decision and maybe going cover screw on that end. Dr. Brisky, what do you do on, on your side? My number is 35. Good to be 35. I'm not as ballsy sometimes as Dr. Dunas. <laughs> with some of his stuff. I don't know. I feel like I would lose a little bit of sleep if it wasn't over 35. 35, I know that that thing is like freaking rock solid and I'm not going to have any issues. The chance that something actually happens with 20, very, very microscopic, <laughs> if anything whatsoever. But sometimes that answer is what you're going to get the most sleep at night. <laughs> when you guys are doing the second stage surgery, when you're uncovering tissue punch versus incision, talk about that a little bit. I would always recommend doing an incision. There's ways to roll the tissue forward. So you're saving the tissue. That tissue is very precious. There's some perio articles out there that recommend Ideally, that you'd have four millimeters of bone on the front side of the implant, 
and four millimeters of tissue on the front side of the implant. How in the world are you going to get that? I have no idea. Their lip is probably going to be bulging out, <laughs> right? If you're even able to, to achieve that. But we tend to sacrifice a lot of bone and keratinized tissue when we're making these restorations. And they're not long-term at that point. So I would always recommend rolling that tissue forward and saving it. Not feeling you know, too empathetic to the fact that you have to give the patient a small anesthetic shot and a small incision. Now, when I've seen people roll that tissue forward, now, are you completely reflecting the attached tissue completely off the bone, or is it just more like the incision, reflect what you need, and then and go from there? Yep. I feel like the more implants you place, the more you realize that your implants are almost in the same spot every time. So when you uncover it, you can really make more of a lingualized, or actually, it's more in the center of the crest, and you're going to do more of like a papilla sparing. So you're going to envision your cut that's going to be between the two teeth that's perpendicular will be pretty much in the middle to the back of the implant and then you're going to make basically two papillo sparing incisions one on each side of the implant and you can just roll that forward if you are missing a ton of tissue uh, at that point i think dr dune does this as well we just make one straight incision across and roll the entire thing forward then let it granulate in okay so you just let it granulate you don't need to suture that you just let it kind of lift the healing button is just lifting up that, that facial tissue and you just let it sit and let it, the body do its thing. Yeah, If it's a huge amount and maybe you went too palatal on that incision and you got this huge roll that's kind of moving, then yeah, you might want to put a horizontal mattress or a couple interrupteds in there to tie it down and have it be secure. But if you do it Dr. Brisky's way with the healing abutment in place, it's typically not, the flap's not moving excessively. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so like we're going into the appointment we're already uncovered. We've got our healing abutment. We've let it give it how many weeks to heal? Three. Three weeks to heal. Now what? So I think this is a kind of, Dr. June touched on this in the beginning. He mentioned kind of like a, a stick with a lollipop on top. And we see Facebook posts on that and people kind of joke around about like, oh, I don't want your implant to look like a, yeah. like a lollipop with a stick on top, right? But you also have to remember, <laughs> we don't want it to be too divergent at the bottom. So the days of the lollipop restorations, those are definitely over. But I think research has also shown now that when you're compressing the tissue too much and you're having too wide of an emergence from the top of the implant that, that's outwards, it's actually compressing the tissue and it causes more bone remodeling. And they touched that about, about this on Zero Bone Loss Concepts book, which is like a fantastic one to read if anyone is really just looking for some more basic implant knowledge that I would 100% recommend reading that book. But the answer is actually a happy medium. You want some emergence, but you don't want it to look like a like a lollipop, basically. Because mm-hmm. that tissue, again, is just so precious that you want to have three, four millimeters of tissue on the top of it. But if you're compressing the tissue, you're going to get bone remodeling. And that also kind of ties back into the type of connection that you're picking. So if you have a very wide divergent implant restoration and you have an implant that's internal hex, like a Zimmer, Biohorizons, Astra, right? All those that which, you know, the system's been cloned like 30,000 times. Those ones, if you have any bone or tissue compression and you don't get enough tissue above the implant restoration, you'll always end up with bone loss, like one, you know, even one millimeter down now because of your restoration. Now, let me jump in and ask you this about the tissue compression, because this is something I see often, and I'm sure a lot of other practitioners do as well, is that we've got too much of an emergence and we go to seat the restoration and we see it. We see the blanching in the tissue. 
what do you do in in that point? And, and I could, well, I could tell you what I do, but go ahead and I want to hear what you guys would say about that. Yeah. So this is something we actually just teach our DAs as well. And we tell them, hey, you know, you put the implant restoration on, you finger, finger tighten it. Now the patient may wimp, wimps a little bit. If they do, give it a quarter, kind of like a quarter turn every 30 seconds to one minute. By the time you get it seated, if you notice that the tissue is blanching, just like you said, like if it's white, that can actually cause bone loss. So the, a good rule of thumb would be if it's still blanching after 10 minutes, that you should start to unloosen it and be more intentional about putting it back down. Or at that point, you should make an incision, seat your abutment, and then let it granulate in at that point. Because that tissue can actually necrose and cause bone loss if the tissue is being blanched for more than 10 minutes. Now, where, did, where does this incision go on seat date? So if you're going to make the incision, you're just going to go mesial distal, and all you're doing is loosening up the mesial and distal tissue so the whole abutment implant restoration can seat. Also, if you're having even just trouble seating your restoration in general, you just get them numb, make your incision, place your abutment and crown and screw it down. Because from that perspective, it could be just excess tissue that's keeping the entire abutment and crown from seating completely regardless. So yeah, Dr. Brisky said exactly what I was going to say, 10 minutes, et cetera, et cetera, and make sure you're watching the blanching go away and showing a marked improvement, if not full resolution in that 10 minute period. Now, if we still see some blanching, does that mean we still have some more work to do or is, is some blanching acceptable? For me, if I see it improve significantly and it's just blanched a little bit, I just let it go. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's one of those things. It's, it's like, I always do the uh, four tiny incisions is what I did. I've never thought about doing from, from distal to mesial, just straight ahead, but I always do four tiny incisions, take them down to bone just on a diagonal is what I do. It's amazing to me is that what a lot with these surgical things is that the body always knows what to do somehow, no matter what you do to it, more or less, you know, but yeah, for shooting for best clinical outcomes. And I've never even considered the fact that if we have blanching tissue, we're not supplying blood supply to the bone, which could cause more bone loss. So that's something I've actually never considered till hearing you say it just now. Yeah, I think your diagonal is is absolutely appropriate way to approach it also. And then if we go back to the surgery, that's why you want to place your implant a millimeter or two subcrestal so you have enough running room for the abutment and crown for this zero bone loss protocol. It's almost like a reverse S type of thing that allows the tissue to come in at the uh, apex or the, the top of the implant and kind of seal that area with tissue and then have a, a proper emergence out of it. And that's why you want to place it, you know, millimeter or two subcrestal. I mean, not like five millimeters subcrestal. You don't need that much running room. So there's always a happy medium between where you're going to be placing your implant and what that translates over into prosthetically when you're restoring them. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we got ahead of, ahead of ourselves there because of my question, but let's let's reel back in. We're talking about how we can digitally, we, we went to delivery already, but let's talk about using the digital component into creating the restorations and, and that. So one little tip is, you know, I like to get a full arch scan so the lab tech can see the mirror image side of the tooth so they can kind of clone that when going into fabricating it. Dr. Brisky, do you have any uh, pointers on the, the digital component on it? A good part of it would be, to start with would be like, uh, if we're going digital, a lot of it has to do with the selection of your scan body is an important part. A lot of implant companies have a plastic or peak scan body, and those typically don't last as long. And you also have to think about the connection piece. So what's screwing into the implant? 
Sometimes that piece is peak again, and sometimes it's metal. So the ones that you really want to go for, uh, just kind of like sky level view, is you want a metal a metal piece, a metal uh, a piece that's going to screw into it, and you want the top to be metal as well. So it's going to scan the best. It's going to always seat because sometimes these scan bodies will wear out and they just don't scan very well. Yeah. And then if it's smooth metal, sometimes scanners won't pick it up as well. So if you get like an air abrader, you can abrade them and your scanner will pick it up a little bit faster and more predictably. We also do upper lower bite scan and we'll scan with the healing abutment out. So you get that little area of the tissue opening in there. And then the secondary scan is with the scan body in place and obviously with the scan body in place, you can't get a bite. So you have to kind of take two separate scans and you need your team to be quick at this because you don't want it taking longer to do the digital process than an analog process. So intraoral scanner wise, I think it's kind of important to recognize which ones are the best on the market for restorative and scanning technology. I think the top two ones are the Medit and Trios. There's a, quite a few articles out there that quote, the research between like scanning for soft tissue, scanning between two points of data accurately without creating uh, like a double image and like ease of use and pace of use. I, I still think the Meta and Trios are the best scanners out there. Which ones do you guys use? We have two Metas and one Trios right now. And our team is like just getting onboarded on using the Trios. They've been using it for a couple of months. And they really like it. And so from that perspective, you know, I think the jury is still out on what I like better, but we use both. And we have two iTeros, and I don't even use iTeros on my crown and bridge and implant work. We're just using that specifically for orthodontics and Invisalign and some records and things like that. Now, what are you guys doing as far as are you just using the scan, sending it to a lab, letting them do it? Or are you guys doing your own design as well? So you have a couple of options here. What we do is, so you can send it to like a lab like Arrowhead and let them do it everything from, from start to finish. Or you can send it to a lab like Primotech. And what they do is they'll design the abutment and the crown. And then they can, you know, mill the abutment and mill the crown and send it to you. Or if you have your internal mill and you can do all that yourself, they can send you the design and you can mill the abutment in-house and the crown in-house and then cementum. Or if you don't mill titanium, they can mill the abutment for you. They'll send you the design for the crown. You can mill your crown in-house. So they're pretty good about you know giving you options if you're doing some of this in-house to get the cost lower. But yeah, it's like a permutation of how much you want to send out and how you want to you know approach it. Let's say we want to send it out to a lab. How do we communicate to the lab that we want this sort of emergence profile that you're speaking of? Like, Because sometimes, I mean, if you're not using the same lab and you're not consistent with it, sometimes you get very different things. Sometimes you get ridge lap, and sometimes you, it's, it's just amazing the diversity and just how much different things you can get. So how do we communicate that effectively to the lab? Yeah, I think one good thing that you can start adding into it is like an x-ray of your implant because the lab they have no idea where the implant is like in terms of the depth right and what you're really going for but if you send them in a picture and you tell them hey like i want a narrower and more gradual emergence profile from this implant and you can almost draw them like a small picture of it right you don't want a candy the apple with a stick and but you also don't want this extremely wide diversion portion so again the answer is in the kind of in the middle there but really just telling them, get on the phone with your lab tech too, but just describe them, hey, I want this to be narrow, more gradual emergence coming out. And then you can also tell them, hey, I want the margins at or below the tissue level. The abutment size has to be an adequate size to support the restoration. 
and you want the subgingival portion to be concave, so it increases tissue thickness. What I mean by that is like concave, right? The tissue will go against it and it will just provide an extra layer of support around it. So think saying that narrower, more gradual emergence, margins at or below the tissue level, but then a concave subgingival design. And typically for a posterior, are you guys doing screw retained or are you cementing? Screw retained, unless for whatever reason, angulation is making us cement retain it. But yeah, I'm going screw retained for almost everything these days, just to prevent you know the need to cement these things and, and all of the above. Also, what I did touch on your previous question is I was at a conference, they showed the zero bone loss concept and a bunch of pictures. I took a bunch of pictures with my phone and I just sent that to the labs we use and say, hey, this is the concept I want. Make sure everything emerges and, and follows this kind of trajectory. So that kind of helped versus writing out, trying to describe it to them. And then also, Dr. Bursky, what's your take on tie base versus custom abutments when you know approaching the screw retained? Because I know I've had lab techs tell me two different things. Mm. Tie base versus the other one. So if you're going to use a tie base, that's okay. But I think the selection of the tie base is very important because a lot of time in x-rays, you'll see a tie base and the collar of the tie base is too close to the bone. So you do need to make sure when you select a tie base that you are thinking about, again, like bone necrosis and tissue necrosis because of the selection of how deep or tall the collar of the tie base is on. Now, how about materials as far as the porcelain? I'm kind of a zirconia guy. It doesn't mean anything is wrong with Emacs, but we just have all the mills in-house. And milling in-house is easier on zirconia versus milling the Emacs because just of the stress on the motors and the burrs. But again, I think it's like almost like what type of bonding agent do you want to use? You want to use Emacs or zirconia or a Scotch bond or whatever. So, you know, I think in a in a very high bruxing patient, yeah, maybe consider zirconia over Z- Emacs. But yeah, I, kn- I know it's kind of dogma sometimes. <laughs> Brisky, what about you? Are you a zirconia guy? Yeah, definitely in zirconia for everything. Zirconia and then uh, gold hued abutment is what we always recommend. What's cool is you can actually buy an anodizer <laughs> on eBay and they cost like less than 50 bucks and you can anodize your own abutments rather than paying the lab to anodize it for you. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what that means. What are you talking about? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all, all metal is silver, right? Silver or gray color. And you can actually send uh, like waves to a piece of metal and it will change the color of the metal. Right. You could get like a blue. That's how all the implant companies do it. They that's why they have like a blue one or a pink one or a purple one or right. But what you want to do, especially in the premolar area forward, is I always have the lab anodize or color the abutment from gray to a gold hue. And it's crazy how much we we pay the labs to do this. <laughs> Cause it actually just all you have to do is buy this anodizer and you hold it on there for literally just a few seconds and it turns a gold color. Really? <laughs> yeah. So it kind of blew my mind when I saw that a few years ago, but you can actually just do it in house and it'll save you $15 every time that you ask for a gold hue abutment. That's like alchemy. <laughs> right? Yeah. Wow. It's, it's, it's freaking magic, man. So actually one thing to touch base on, I know it's not the topic of this podcast, but if you're in the anterior high smile line, consider zirconia implants. So you don't get that metal show through. If you get metal show through on a young, pretty patient with a high smile line, man, they are not going to be happy about it. So consider that, but we don't have to touch on zirconia implants right now. Now, just since you brought it up, like you, you're placing zirconia implants. In very specific areas. And so it's, it's 99% titanium. 
and it's going to be zirconia implants in high smile lines, in the anterior, thin biotypes, and making sure that it's, for me, it's only for cosmetic purposes. Plus, we live uh, north of Denver, so we're very close to a city called Boulder. Boulder is very well known for not liking, you know, fluoride or metal or anything that has to do with, you know, gluten allergies or, you know, all the above. So we get some of the crowd that say, hey, doc, I can't have one of those titanium implants. Those are really bad for me. So some of them is just the patients that may be slightly crazy that are asking for it as well. (laughs) (laughs) Just looking at like the digital workflow, taking a digital scan, designing it yourself, milling it yourself. What kind of advantages are, do you feel, are that compared to doing the old analog way that maybe a lot of us have learned in school? I don't know what they're teaching in dental school anymore. They definitely weren't teaching anything digital when I went to dental school. I think the cost and the speed is what's the benefit on a single unit. When you get into multiple units, I think there's a little bit more accuracy involved because you don't get the uh, shrinkage of the PVS and then the expansion in the stone and so on and so forth to get passivity within a multiple unit type of restoration. I I would say that's the biggest one for me, but then also it's like having just the digital records of everything from A to Z. And yeah, Brisky, anything I'm missing on that? I think the real ROI is the the fact that patients don't want some alginate shoved down their throat. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I feel like with advancement in technology, there is just a certain level of advancement that really isn't super beneficial, right? But the patients find it extremely beneficial in terms of things that they don't have to do and like the wow factor. And nowadays, right, like when we show patients the scans, they're like, holy crap, you know, like we, that was never a thing a couple of years ago. And they're just going to love you for it. Right. So I think the ROI sometimes is just the, the wow factor. Yeah. You mentioned like the, al- the alginate and the impression material down your throat. <laughs> it's like making me think of. A few impressions my assistants have taken. <laughs> Not that my assistants take impressions that I should be doing as the doctor, or maybe they do, <laughs> you know. But yeah. but like like where you, you look at this thing and you're like, how did this patient not throw up? It's like halfway down the throat. They're like, how did how did you do this? This is great. Well, not great, but you know, it's funny. But yeah, I, I'm sure they appreciate it. Nobody likes the goop. So, yep. and it's, it's amazing. I mean, that this digital scanning, like head cam technology has been around forever. And I think it's finally just turning where it's becoming a lot more popular, but people are still blown away by it. And I, I think there's a, it, there's just a coolness to it. It's a, it's a cool toy to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I absolutely agree. And if we pivot into like anterior restorations, you know, literally, I think there's like three different questions we answered over the past week for docs about how do I get the emergence profile cosmetically in the front of the mouth, usually maxilla, on if a healing abutment's placed, and how do I sculpt the tissue in a way where it mirrors you know, the neighboring teeth and tissue heights and all of the above. And so several comments were, were on there. You know, If it's a cosmetic patient, I personally always recommend a temporary abutment and temporary crown to be placed The point of contact needs to be in specific areas so the papilla will fill in. Sometimes papillas filling in takes like a really long time in terms of like months sometimes to just kind of fill in into those areas. And then you got to figure out how bulky to make the facial, how concave to make the facial, to move and push that gingival zenith component to the right place where it looks symmetrical with the neighboring teeth. And you have to go back and forth and you got to charge appropriately for this, but you can't charge the patient when you get to the restorative part. You have to charge the patient before you place the implant 
because you have to have that conversation ahead of time to say, hey, this is going to be five or six, maybe tissue sculpting appointments when we get to the restorative component. So that way you're not burning all your chair time and lab bills on extra stuff to get this dialed in properly. And if it's a low smile line, don't sweat it. And this is all stuff that you guys teach at Colorado Surgical Institute, correct? Correct. Yeah. So we have a course called the PGCA course where we do single implants and stuff like that. And then actually, you know, tomorrow we're starting our full arch course for for the August attendees. And that's going to be overdentures and full arch and photogametry and all of that stuff. And so I guess while we're talking on that, I mean, when you do a scan, there's something called like, you know, it's like quadrant accuracy and global accuracy versus, you know, what the photogametry is, it's this absolute accuracy of implant locations. And then we can kind of pivot into, you know, what the difference is in intraoral scanner and the accuracy it brings to the table versus the photogametry units and how that's utilized on more full arch cases to get perfect passivity. I think this is like a perfect time to kind of like pivot almost into like digital dentistry in terms of like all annexes and the full arch too, and some topics that we could probably touch on. Yeah, so the next episode, that's what we're going to be hitting up. You guys got a promo code that people can text in. Why don't you tell listeners about that? Yeah, if you text HERO to 970-546-7766, so again, that's 970-546-7766, you'll get a really good discount on our program. You can apply to our full arch program. Or our single unit wisdom tooth, root canal, full arch exodontia, socket preservation program. All right. Thank you so much, guys. And we will talk to you next time. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Dune from Colorado Surgical Institute. Just wanted to give you guys a shout out and let you know about the program. We have full arch surgeries. We have lateral sinus lifts. We have block grafting courses all done in one weekend with the whole digital workflow with photogametry units, scanners, 3D printers, milling, you name it, anything regarded to full arch, we cover in depth. We also have a PGCA course. What that is, it's the Postgraduate Clinical Accelerator course where we are going to be covering wisdom teeth, single implants, and it can be complex single implants with vertical sinus lifts. We'll also be covering full arch extractions with ridge reduction, bone grafting, PRP, suturing, and we also will have a course on socket preservation. So if you guys are interested in any of those courses, please reach out to us at Colorado Surgical Institute. The code is HERO10 for 10% off our courses because we love Paul Etchison and his podcast, and we're here to help.